You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, your source for the paranormal, the mysterious, and the strange. Welcome back, goblins! Before we get started, I want to thank my generous patrons who helped to make this show possible. Annie K, Kylie H, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. If you want to help keep this show going, and keep a steady supply of coffee in my bloodstream, join me at patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. All patrons get early access to shows for as little as $1 a month, and anyone pledging $3 or more a month gets access to extended episodes. Those who pledge more get episode shoutouts and a warm, tingly sensation inside that may or may not be an eldritch horror awaiting the next planetary alignment at which time it will cast off this mortal shell and retake its throne after untold aeons and rule over the denizens of this puny planet. Wait. Where am I? Oh, right. Patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, on with the show. Anyone who was once a space-obsessed five-year-old knows that our sun will one day turn into a white dwarf. Granted, human civilization will either be extinct, or we will have developed interstellar travel, so the loss of our sun won't be too terrible a loss. That said, it will potentially be devastating to our solar system. And now we have confirmation of this destruction. When a star like ours dies, it expands briefly into a red giant, demolishing everything within the inner planetary ring. It then sheds most of its excess energy in the form of a gaseous outburst, much like a celestial fart, before reducing again into a compact, crystalline structure known as a white dwarf. That's right, 97% of all stars in the Milky Way will one day become crystals. What's interesting about these radioactive crystal balls is that they still retain the same gravitational density as the star at full active size. So all the rubble from demolished planets gets sucked into the gravity well produced by this star corpse. That debris gets added to the crystalline sphere, which increases in density, allowing it to have a greater pull. Sometimes, after gobbling up all the space junk, it gains enough gravity that it can start to draw in planets. At least, that's the theory. How can we confirm this theory? Scientists began by using spectroscopy to look at the composition of known white dwarfs, and they noticed pockets of dense iron and magnesium. Theoretically, these would have come from the cores of planetary bodies. Adding this information to their theories, they began to observe active white dwarfs, Using the Chandra X-ray telescope, scientists zoomed in on G2938, where they watched for massive energy spikes, and they were not disappointed. They recorded several explosions on the surface of the dwarf, which matched theoretical models of planetary impacts. In these locations, the plasmoid surface of the white dwarf temporarily increased to 1.8 million degrees Fahrenheit. Since a white dwarf can't really generate that much energy without fuel, and based on the general composition of planetary bodies, scientists presume that this spike was caused by a planet striking the dwarf and combusting. Don't worry though, we still have several billion years before our sun becomes an interstellar bug zapper. 
It has been readily accepted that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens only interacted for about 5,000 years before Neanderthals went extinct. This concept has been around pretty much as long as we've known about Neanderthals. New evidence has drastically changed that theory, though. The Mandarin cave site in the Rhone region of France, not to be confused with the Chinese Mandarin, is host to a wide array of artifacts. Each artifact was neatly covered in sandy layers due to strong winds known as mistrals. Because each layer is isolated from the next, we can examine each layer as a separate occupation. Several layers have flint blades that are attributed to Neanderthals, but some have much smaller, more detailed workings, which paleoanthropologists think are primitive arrowheads. These flint points are attributed to the speculative Neronian people. Until recently, they were the only evidence for this culture, but a series of teeth have been unearthed and analyzed. The results certainly surprised archaeologists. Not only did these teeth show that humans inhabited this cave, but analysis of soot on the cave walls showed that it was continuously inhabited for about 40 years by a single population. These new findings push back the estimated arrival date of Homo sapiens in Europe an additional 9,000 years. So, in at least a few places, there was a lengthy period of interaction between anatomically modern humans and Neanderthals. This next article describes what are probably some of the creepiest carvings I have ever seen. Excavated in 1836 by ditch diggers in Rus Kar, these figures are estimated to be about 2,600 years old. Initially, the find contained two, quote, warrior figures, a wooden box, a serpent-headed boat, and various other wooden items too degraded to remove from the ground. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? Well, let me describe these warriors to you. They are tall and lanky, with heads shaped like inverted teardrops. Their faces have the bare hint of noses and mouths, but their eyes. Oh, their eyes. They are large, almond-shaped, and made entirely from quartz crystal. If you're picturing the cover of Whitley Strieber's Communion, then you're on the right track. These things look like the stereotypical gray alien. Their arm, yes, that's singular because only one of their four arms remains, fits in a socket at the shoulder and looks to have been made from a gnarled root. Speaking of socketed limbs, their genitals are also removable, so you can make these figures either male or female. They don't have hair or beards, so this is done simply by removing the dingus, which also appears to be made from a gnarled root. Anyway, if you want to see these creeptastic alien-like carvings, they will be on display at the British Museum as part of the World of Stonehenge exhibit until July 17th. In dinosaur news, there is a proposition that is likely to cause a lot of commotion. Could Tyrannosaurus really be three different species. We haven't really seen anything like this since the T-Rex and Nanotyrannus debate, but I feel like this one may have a bit more evidence to back it up. The basic idea is this. 
over the entirety of the existence of T. rex, there have been noticeable changes in their physical structure. Some of this has to do with the number of incisors they have, and some of this has to do with the size and robustness of their bone structure. These differences are not necessarily due to sexual dimorphism, which is a series of measurable physical characteristics that are based on the animal's gender. Additionally, these changes in physical structure can be tracked over time, based on what sediment layer the fossils were excavated from. Those in the lowest layers all had similar, extremely robust physical makeups, while those in the middle and upper layers seem to have diverged into two variants. One with thinner bone structures, called gracile, and one whose makeup continued along the path of their ancestors, although they lost their extra incisors. Because of this traceable change over time, Paleontologist Gregory Paul proposes that two new species of Tyrannosaur needs to be created. This is where I get super excited because these names are so freaking cool. The lower level one with the chunky bones and an extra set of incisors would be known as Tyrannosaurus Imperator. No longer the Tyrant King, but now the Tyrant Lizard Emperor. The species that maintained the bulkiness of Imperator would maintain the title of T-Rex, but the thinner, sleeker dinosaur would take the title of Tyrannosaurus Regina or Tyrant Lizard Queen. All I have to say in conclusion is, long live the queen! It's time for another top 10, but this time, the numbers are tabulated in an interesting way. UFO sightings, ghost reports, and other miscellaneous supernatural reports. These three categories are then tabulated into a single spooky rating by state. So let's take a look at the top three UFO hotspots in the US. In third place, with 6,720 reported sightings, the Evergreen State. Washington. Coming in at second place with 7,513 sightings, the Sunshine State, Florida. Finally, leading the pack by almost double, which is not surprising considering its size, with 15,072 sightings, the Golden State, California. But what about ghosts? Taking third place with 2,903 reported ghost sightings is the Buckeye State, Ohio. Second place reports more than double that total with 6,973. The Golden State again, California. Finally, taking the number one spot for the most ghost sightings with a whopping 7,382, the Lone Star State, Texas. Finally, we have the states with the highest amount of uncategorized weirdness. Coming in third, and probably no surprise here, with a total of 9,271 weird reports, the weirdest state in the Union, Florida. In second place, with a total of 13,013 sightings, again, the Lone Star State of Texas. Man. That's a lot of chupacabras. 
Finally, first place goes to the state that has already placed in the top three of every other category. Clocking in with 22,045 reports of the supernatural, California. Now, this is where things get interesting. When you combine all these totals and adjust them for population density, the results shift drastically. The top three states where you were most likely to have any sort of paranormal encounter are Big Sky Country, the Green Mountain State, and the Pine Tree State, or Montana, Vermont, and Maine. So maybe Stephen King really was onto something there. When I read the headline for the next article, I was excited for what archaeologists may have found. Graves of dozens of kings from the time of King Arthur uncovered in Britain. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Prepare to be underwhelmed. It turns out that these were the graves of early Christian kings and their burial practices were brutally Spartan, even for the nobility. While their heathen neighbors were conducting elaborate funerary rites, leaving behind massive quantities of grave goods, these early kings were wrapped in a sheet, buried, and sometimes a decorative fence was built around the grave. In fact, the inclusion of this fence is the only thing that really indicates that these individuals interred in these graves were anything but peasantry. In another disappointing article, neuroscientists announced that spending time in outer space may alter astronauts' brains. The article talks about how they compare MRIs before space, after space, and several months after the astronauts return. Doctors expected significant rewiring and physiological changes to the organ, but instead, quote, where initially it was thought that there are real structural changes in the brain, we only observe shape changes. This puts the findings in a different perspective, end quote. So, time and space changes the brain's form, but not function. In a more positive spin, it means that the human brain is a bit more durable than we thought, considering that a trip to the vacuum of space doesn't alter it besides making it look funny. You know the Himalayan mountains are big, right? Like, really big. Some of their peaks are above the cloud line. That's pretty damn big. What would you say if I told you that in the Earth's past, we've had bigger mountains? Seems pretty crazy, right? It's starting to look like there is evidence for massive supermountains, sadly, that is the official term for these formations, at least twice in the Earth's geological past. The size and span of these mountain ranges are based on the discovery and mapping of deposits of zircon crystals which only form beneath the weight and pressure of mountain ranges. The first of these mountains was formed in the Cambrian period, in which most of the world was underwater. The second mountain chain formed on the supercontinent, again, yes, that's the official term, you can't make this stuff up, the supercontinent of Gondwanaland. These ranges are believed to have been about four times the size of the Himalayas. Now, the scientists in this article are saying that the appearance of and erosion of these supermountains 
spurred on spikes in evolution. The first mountain was at its peak when Earth's first eukaryotic cells were forming, while the Transgondwana land mountain was around when the first large land animals began to appear in the fossil record. The theory is that the erosion of these mountains dumped massive quantities of minerals into the oceans, which triggered evolutionary leaps and bounds. I'm going to assume that there is a bit more to this theory because I'm seeing a lot of correlation and not a lot of causation. Just because these mountains were around when these events took place doesn't mean that they caused it. The first thing that pops into mind for me is, what kind of crazy tectonic activity was helping to create these super mountains? Could that have had something to do with the evolutionary increase? When tectonic plates shift that much, chances are fissures will also be opening and releasing gases and chemicals. Anyway, I'm just a podcaster. I'm not a geologist. So, there's glass marbles on the moon? Yeah, China found them. I guess no one involved in astronomy is really surprised, but this is the first that I'm hearing of it. It seems that they form from either previous volcanic activity on the moon, which, again, apparently that was a thing, or from meteor impacts. Actually, that makes a lot of sense, and to me sounds pretty cool. So what happens is that the meteor hits the surface, fusing silica particles into glass. Meteor impacts generate a lot of heat, you see. But because of the lower gravity, these bits of liquid glass create spherules in the air. What gravity there is causes these spherules to fall to the surface of the moon, making it look like someone has lost their marbles. And that's not really an exaggeration either, since these silica formations can get to be about 40 millimeters in diameter, or roughly the size of a masher used in a game of marbles. What's interesting about the ones that China discovered during the U-2-2 mission is that they were translucent. I guess the ones found during the Apollo missions were opaque. The current working theory is that the Chinese spherules were created when a meteor struck a pocket of volcanic glass which reliquified it. Whatever the answer is, the part of my soul that drives me to collect shiny objects really, really wants one. Trigger warning for arachnophobes. We're talking about spiders next. You've been warned. Are you still here? Why are you still here? Get out of here. Come on, skip ahead like three minutes or something. Come back to this. Okay. Yeah, spiders. So, did you know that there's a type of spider that attacks in swarms? These critters don't have a common name, so I'm just going to call them Exemius, which is their species nomenclature. Anyway, they live in Central and South America and create these large web traps, which they use to collectively hunt. They don't seem to have a leader or a queen, and I'm not sure if that makes them more or less frightening, but collectively they attack their victims. Based on their hunting patterns, they don't seem to have great eyesight, instead relying almost entirely on the vibrations on their webs. When an insect lands, they all dash forward, and then stop, simultaneously, to listen. Then. When they are assured that the insect's location is on the web still, they all dash forward again, and then stop. 
they do this until they reach their food, at which time they all attack simultaneously. So there's your D&D inspiration for the month. Blind pack hunting spider swarms. Hmm. Maybe I need to make this a regular feature. I'm sure a lot of you have already heard this last article, but for the rest of you, were you aware that earlier this year, the stone imprisoning a Japanese yokai finally cracked open? Great news, huh? The volcanic boulder known as Seshuseki began to split a few years ago, but it finally fractured entirely in early 2022. This stone was said to have imprisoned the Tamamo no Mai, which is the spirit of a nine-tailed fox that attempted to assassinate the emperor in the guise of a beautiful woman. The site has been a popular tourist location leading up to this, but now people seem concerned that the vengeful spirit may be loose in the area. Some people have suggested, and I kid you not, that maybe we could just try gluing the stone back together? Well, it's getting late, which means it's time for... News of the Weird. In recent news, paleontologists used a CT scan to examine the brain case of a notosaur dinosaur. The results showed that these animals, which were protected by a shell, covered in spikes, and wielded a clubbed tail, were also likely deaf. It's like God asked, hey, what could make this armored murder machine more interesting? Oh, I know. What if it were easily startled? Jurassic Park has his imagining sauropods striding gracefully through their environment, which may not be the case. After analyzing fossil trackways and comparing them to the estimated masses of these creatures, paleontologists have determined that they probably moved more like an angry hippopotamus. I honestly have no joke for this one because the very idea of it makes me giggle. According to notes from explorer Hiram Bingham, we may have mislabeled the ancient Incan ruins of Machu Picchu. Re-examining Bingham's field journal from the time, it was discovered that the name actually refers to the mountain itself. So at this point, calling the city Machu Picchu is just about as accurate as a five-year-old calling the ancient ruins Pikachu. Earlier this year, details were released about an Ice Age Appalachian cheetah skeleton found deep within a cave system in Virginia. While it's unclear how the skeleton ended up in its final location, my guess, as a cat owner, is that someone told it, No! Don't you go into those caves! Don't you do it! Some people learned to play musical instruments to pass the time during the pandemic. A handful of MIT scientists decided instead to find out what a spiderweb sounds like. The idea kind of makes sense. Spiders don't see that well, so their senses rely mostly on the vibration of their webs. The best way for us humans to conceptualize this is to convert those vibrations into sound. When the computer simulations were finished, unsurprisingly, it didn't sound at all like the Tarantella. Instead, it sounded like a kindergartner that just discovered a synthesizer. There's a YouTube video of this if you need to maybe get, like, Baby Shark out of your head or something. I don't know. This train wreck is probably a good place to end the show. 
A quick reminder that this is the final news brief episode of Season 2. Remember that after the next Book Club episode, I will be taking a one-month break before returning for Season 3. But don't worry, I'm coming back. So until the next episode, remember, stay weird.